Um, before we start, I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving. Um, holidays are sometimes not easy, and and I think because of everything that's going on in COVID, they're complicated. And we got a note from a parishioner who had left St. Francis to go to Florida. They moved and got a, one of those group letters, and she described, I mean, they're very happy in what they're doing, but she described the last year, and it was just a long list of deaths and um, family isolation, and it was just, um, she was cheerful and glad, but um, just a reminder that the world we lived in a year ago is gone, and it's it's um, changed everybody. I I hope um, we can all find a grace in it for us. Anyway, I hope you all had a good um, Thanksgiving, and I hope your families are well. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you, Lord, for um, this day, for the um, gift of yourself this morning in the Mass, for your presence with us. For this past Thanksgiving week, um, it was a time set aside to do what we should be doing daily, which is to thank you. The words in the Mass are always always and everywhere to be thankful. It's what one of the great truths of the center of Boethius. Um, thank you for um, Thanksgiving. Um, we, sorry you guys, um, um, <laughs> we carry the burdens of the cross, lots of us, often, um, but we're asked to do it in hope, in charity, in faith, particularly when there's no reasons. And Thanksgiving is a day set aside so that we can focus ourselves on our gratitude. And um, I hope all of us passed it with some sense of that, that um, we're grateful for the gifts that we do have, even though we may experience them now in some diminished form because we're isolated so much from our families. Strengthen in us a spirit of <clears throat> faith, hope, and charity to hope and have faith and love when we have no reasons. That's our faith. Um, can you just... Um, and help us to bring it to all that we're doing. Um, I ask your blessing on all that we're doing tonight. If it give... Um, a blessing on all that we're doing tonight. Um, help clear our minds. Um, help us to give ourselves to what we're doing. And more importantly, help us to live these things, the truths that Boethius and Lewis give us, that um, these extraordinary gifted people who, um, who had the courage to do things that other people didn't, to show us ourselves sometimes those things we don't like. Um, in order for us to grow better, and in our church it means growing towards holiness. Um, help all of us carry the burdens of doing that, um, to receive the call to holiness, as hard as it is. We offer these prayers in your name. Um, oh, sorry, Lynn. Sorry. Watch over Lynn, Kathy's son. Be with him. Um, help him through his physical struggles, and I ask a special blessing for um, two of our sons, Thomas, our oldest, and Christopher, um, in their struggles. 
um, please um, be with all of us. Give us the courage um, to be obedient, to do your will, to give ourselves to what you're asking. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Is that Mike? Yeah. Hold on, you guys, you just briefly. You need to sign into your one account again. Mike, are you there? None of the files that I dropped in the folder are in there tonight, and I don't want to take any time right now. What I'd like to do, can, can I call you tomorrow? Let me... So what do I do? Okay, can I do that tomorrow? I'll call, I'll call you tomorrow. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. Um, we don't have Tony's. The, um, the readings from her. I have no idea. We Let's um, let's skip the lyric this tonight because we're late, and I want to get back to short lyrics. Um, can you hand me? Where's the? Oh Lord, where's the holy cow? What? There was a boy. God bless the. Um, I printed off the, the Lewis thing. You didn't take anything on the printer. I did not. Yeah. Is it I don't know, Doc. Um, just a couple of words on. Um, God, you guys, sorry, I'm just not navigating this well. Um, the end of um, end of consolation. Um, showed us Lady Philosophy um, finishing her cure on Boethius. She'd taken him through various stages and they got tougher and tougher so that he had to deal with harder and harder problems, things that he wasn't prepared for in the beginning. And you know that in the last stages of her argument, she was making a distinction between perpetuity and eternity and between the ways that men know and um, God, and um, um, she she made one of these one of the most important statements that ever been made philosophically. I think it was one of the great contributions of the Middle Ages. That we cannot know what we know well if we don't question ourselves. If we you know this from the Platonic Cave. If we don't be, begin to question how we know, and the assertion she made then was that. Um, we can't know a thing unless we know the mode of the knower. And I thought we went through that um, pretty carefully the last two weeks, and particularly last week. We talked about the difference between the, the way a dog knows, the mode of, of dogs knowing, and a human and an angel. And I, I thought some of the comments that all of you guys made um, were really, really fine. Um, we have to know the mode of the knower. And she went through the various faculties that human possess, senses, imagination, reason, or ratio, and in, in what the, in, what the middle, medievals called ratio intellectus, reason, understanding. 
Ratio means reasoning step by step on particulars. Understanding means grasping the whole. It's closer to the way God knows and the way angels know. And she said um, that there's no way in which senses could know the way ratio or intellectus knows, but intellectus and reason know the way imagination and senses know. So for us to expect to know the way God knows would be like expecting the senses to know the way reason or ratio or intellectus knows. Can't. But she made the point that um, for God there, one of the reasons for making the distinction between perpetuity and eternity is to show the difference between timeless moments, one after another, which is the state in which we live, and eternity in which um, there is no future or past but only an eternal present. And God knows through that mode and he has an infinite capacity for knowledge. So he knows in a way we don't. We can't begin to, to grasp. We, we can only know abstractly that difference. And we finished making the point that um, for God there's no future or past the fact that he sees something doesn't determine it. Witi's made that clear. The fact that I see Suzanne sitting here doesn't determine it. She's sitting there. It's necessary that I say. She's sitting there. She is. And it's necessary that my knowledge conforms to that. It's true that she's sitting there. It's necessary that she is. The fact that God sees something doesn't determine it. He always sees according to an ongoing present. But we, we believe that he's a God of love, and because he is, we know that while he's being protective of our free wills, he can also intervene. He can do things we can't see. So that um, if, if we accept Boethius' early conclusion that there is no bad fortune, that there's only good fortune, that a good God is always working to bring good out of evil, then we know that he can do things relating to our lives that can help us. That's our faith. Um, and um, I want to leave it there. I don't want to go into it because we, I think we've covered it um, pretty thoroughly. Um, but, I, but I just wanted to end with this observation and then leave any last comments to you guys. The, the consolation ends with Boethius finishing that argument. We're left with a sense of the way God knows and how the way in which he's working with our free will. So the whole question of punishment and rewards gets answered. If all of our actions were predestined and predetermined, there would be no point in giving rewards or penalties um, because everything we do would be determined. So everything about our faith, our free will, the the way in which God sees things, what he does, got clarified. One of the beauties of that work is that it shows the tremendous resources of rationality at the heart of Christianity. That there are these profound um, resources. Um, that everything in nature is intelligible. It shows the logos. And everything we do with our minds um, can help us grasp that. Obviously, reason goes bad. People use reason in a bad way. Um, people can go to hell. They can keep turning against God with what they do with their reason. You remember when we did Dante, the description over the, or as we entered the inferno was, 
um, those who have lost the good of the intellect. The intellect is the leading power. It's through our minds that we can see things, understand them, and it's on the basis of what we see that we can make our choices, give our wills to something, good or bad. So it was a great illustration, affirmation of the, the natural powers that we've been given by reason. The Protestant world has blasted that in some ways because it, it begins with the assumption that reason is depraved, that our nature has been depraved, that the consequences of the fall were depravity. Um, but here in the Middle Ages, we, we get another view. But that's the way we ended. And um, I suggested, I think last week, that I think one of the reasons Boethius ended then is um, to leave open-ended what Boethius does. We don't know. We don't go back to him. But what we do know, and this is one of the more amazing things about that work, is at a time when Boethius was struggling, whining, crying, he was bitterly anger or angry. He was falsely accused. He had every reason to be upset. Um, boy, lady philosophy comes to him. So it's not in the form of a grace, even though it seems to me it is a grace. The, the interesting thing about it is that her arrival, in a sense, affirms the help we find from reason when we're in trouble. Um, you know that that's the beginning of Dante's Inferno, or the whole person, the Commedia. He's climbing the hill, he gets beaten, by, beaten back by the dogs, the an or sorry, the animals, and Virgil comes. But we know that Virgil comes as a result of this activity in heaven, that Virgil was sent by Beatrice and Lucia and Mary. So a whole divine order was put into work for him. Um, I think Dante builds on Boethius, but the point worth making here is that um, what happens in Boethius is, is an affirmation of the way in which reason, natural reason, the good of reason, can help us in times of trouble. We're not in the supernatural virtues yet, faith, hope, charity. We're still in the natural virtues, but um, but there's a wonderful affirmation of him here in natural philosophy and what Boethius does. So let me just let me stop there. Any last comments before we put Boethius away and turn to the last chapter in C.S. Lewis? Any questions or comments on Boethius? The interesting thing for me is that both Boethius and Lewis are doing everything they can to use reason to support the Christian faith, even though neither one of them is referring to it. Both of them are showing how great our powers of reason can be if we use them well. Fred, go ahead. Yeah. Can you turn that off? Just a, a quick question. You may have talked about this last week when we weren't here, but the fact that Boethius goes through that exercise successfully using reason and some of the other situations that we've covered, like till we have faces with Uriel, the implication at least is that all of those had 
an ordered soul to begin with. Question is, can you still go through that exercise successfully if you don't have an ordered soul? Something to fall back on that firmly plants your reason in the right place. By, sorry, Fred, I, let me, by ordered soul, you mean a soul that can be ordered? Because so many of the characters we see don't begin with ordered souls. There's some disorder that needs to be straightened out. But was there was there a basic order to begin to build on to begin with? Like Boethius, for example. In the questions that Lady Philosophy asked him and in his responses, it implies that there was already an ordered soul there to begin with, and it just there was a a, a string of the path, so to speak, but having been on the path once, it was a lot easier to find your way back. If you've never had that pathway to begin with, can you find it? Yeah. Um, that's a good question, Fred. I mean, the reason I asked the question I did a minute ago is because um, it seems to me almost all of the works that we've read imply an orderable, a soul that can be ordered, you know, intrinsically, that there's this intrinsic good in man. Um, Dante says the same thing in the Purgatory when he's describing the, the creation of the human soul and what happens to it when it goes bad. That ought some, I'd, I'd have to think on this more, but just off the top of my head, my response is that every one of them, almost every one of them assumes there is an order to the soul, it's intrinsic, it's there, or whatever happens couldn't bring them to the place they're brought to at the end. Um, but I, but I, I, can't, I can't think of a work in which any person begins with a soul already ordered because we wouldn't have a problem. You know, there's a conflict because there's something wrong, Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, um, Oriol, I mean, you know, um, you, Billy, you can go on and on. There's um, something not quite right and it's because of what happens in the story that each person is brought to something better. So I, I can say pretty, pretty definitely that there is an intrinsic good. It's wounded, it's hurt, it's, it's skewed in some way, there's something wrong, or we wouldn't have a story. Um, but I think your point is it's a really good one because there's, there's a radical difference between beginning with the idea that the soul is is in essence corrupted and um, a belief that the soul is in essence good but wounded and it needs help to to fulfill itself um, I'm not sure if that answers your question it, it, it does I guess I, I, I ask it knowing that we're getting ready to go back to evolution and and the point that I think Lewis is making is that without the proper education, without the proper training, you have a disordered soul. And the question is, can you, with that, with those who have that disordered soul, is there a way for them to find their way back like Boethius or Uriel or, you know, pick one? Yeah. That's yeah. really I guess, where I was going with the question. Yeah, it's such a good question. But, I, you know, this is, I, big surprise, 
this is a just a you know it's a larger discussion but it seems to me one of the values of the works that we've been reading is that and it's it's evident in um, consolation is that i mean it's one of the reasons i made the point that i did if if boethius is right if he's right and there is this good at work in the world um bonum est diffusium suia the goodness is diffusive of itself that God's goodness is diffusing itself through the world, then if, if we believe that, I think we're to understand that, um, that even if some soul is going plural, it's, it's a, I mean, your question is pretty profound. It, it's our, our belief in all of the, all the literature that we've read certainly affirms that when souls go bad, something happens. There's somebody there. Does that mean in all cases? No, because we, you know, in Dante, Dante's hell is full of souls that have gone bad. They, they are not receptive to the good. But what Boethius illustrates, what Billy Budd, what the Commedia, I mean, any of the stories, I'm, I want to make it even more forcefully if, if I can in a second. All of them show that something's happening. Something's intervening to take a situation where everything looks like it's going to hell and something turns it. Let me make it, if I can, more, more emphatically. Shakespeare knew all of this. I mean, you, you can't read Shakespeare and not know that he's read Boethius and all the Greek tragedians and, you know, St. Augustine and Thomas and the poets. He, they're just so much a part of him. I, I can't read the Agamemnon without feeling that Shakespeare had... Aeschylus in his bones. Um, you can't read a Shakespearean tragedy and not become aware of Boethius because every one of the tragedies, this is Aristotle's point. Moderns, we, we've lost, we, I just think there's something in the, in the modern world that's lost because we, we've lost a sense of tragedy. Remember, Aristotle said, all great tragedies turn. There's a moment of recognition, there's a peripatia, an anagnorisis, they turn a scene, and the action turns. So every, every tragedy affirms the diffusiveness of goodness, that goodness is at work. Otherwise, why doesn't every tragedy, with all the deaths that are come, end cynically? Or with a view that says, like the moderns, there's no purpose to life. There are lots of modern critics who read Shakespeare and say, Shakespeare's giving us um, Macbeth, Lear, Anthony, Cleopatra, Hamlet, that all those tragedies show us a, a nihilistic view of life. There's no meaning to life. I think they're absolutely wrong. I mean, if they were reading Aristotle and clear about what's going on after the change, they'd see there's no way you can read those tragedies that way. Every tragedy, in Aristotle's sense, the, the good ones, reaffirm the role of reason and, in a Christian world, of grace. That something's happening to help people when they're most in need of help to turn. I think most or some of us believe in hell, which means some people are going to refuse God's mercy or the turn. But all, all great literature, everything we've read, just you, we, the things we, things we haven't read, um, Dickens, Jane Austen, um, Conrad, you can go on and on, Henry James, all of them um, explore depths of sin and evil in man, but all of them affirm the ultimate goodness of life. So they're showing 
that there is some ultimate goodness that's recovered, that's wounded, that's hurt, that's the basis for wisdom, that without it we can't go on, but, um, but every one of them shows there's some great good or there wouldn't be that affirmation, you know, and the change at the end. So all the literature we've been reading is, is dealing directly with your question. Um, sorry, Debbie, did you have something? You guys are really good. Debbie, your audio's not on. I can't can't hear you. Can you? I I I thought Fred's question was excellent, um, but when he first started talking, the thing that came to my mind was I saw many years ago in someone's uh, it, I can't even remember where I saw it. It said, "God don't make no junk," and um, God made our souls. And yeah, so yeah. Uh, to end, I mean, it's a, it was a very simple way of saying, you know what? We all started out um, whole and something happened along the way. And, and, um, uh, and who knows what that is? For, I think for each one of us, there are challenges. It's just life. There are challenges and, and uh, God willing and we willing um to to um uh you know try to learn try to know try to understand try to um improve try to try to be what god has wanted us to be um mm -hmm. we we start out as children and god willing before the end we become children again and and um you know that's what god tells us to do that's what christ told us to be to do is to be like children and um but i i when he started talking that's all i could think of is is you know god don't make no junk and he made each one of us so that's my only comment <laughs> if if i can add to that um um our belief is that when we start out we don't start out okay we believe we inherited adam's sin and his fault, but that's an inherited. And baptism is crucial as an act of faith because it's through baptism that that original goodness which was lost is restored. So that when we're born, we carry um, Adam's wound, his fault. And it's Christ's wound that restores our health. That's our faith. So when we start out, um, and and I, I think, you know, the world confirms that wherever, you know, people, who, the people who want to deny sin seem to me to be in the most gravest kind of denial because you, you can't look anywhere today and not find sin. I mean, it, it's, it's in ourselves. We don't have to look farther than ourselves, it seems to me. So when we start out, we don't start off well. We're, that's why we, we baptize because it's an act of faith to bring God into our lives to help us do something we can't alone. The other thing is, I would just, I don't want to, I hope I don't press this too much, but Christ said, be like the little children. I think our end is to be adults, but like little, we're supposed to grow into Christ's love, you know, to be like him. Um, but to do that, we have to 
be like kids to or children to recover recover something of their innocence and their simplicity and I remember I mean I, I I'm so fond of that line where he looks at who was it in Bartholomew I can't remember who the Jew was in the tree and said there's a Jew with no guile you know because his sense is that he he couldn't look around in Israel and not find anybody who wasn't full of guile um, we're asked to get past that um, to become like children while we grow into adult love and in, um, in our church the the path to that is the cross and the sacraments so we constantly get divine help um, um, any other any other thoughts or comments before we um, it's it's interesting to put these two men together Boethius and Lewis because of even though they're very different in what they're doing, there there's a common ground. Our church calls us to a cross, and I don't think anybody can go to a cross and remain a child. And um, and, and actually, it's it's sort of strange. I, I don't know if you guys got my second message to you, but Jesus is going to maintain that it's only through suffering that we can grow in wisdom, become who we are. Um, and it seems to me one of the one of the defining characteristics of modernity is to do everything it can to take away suffering. It sees suffering as a bad. It denies the wounds of Christ, it denies the wounds I mean sorry, the, it denies the wounds of Adam, denies the wounds of Christ. It wants to make our lives comfortable. It does everything to everything it can to seduce us away from the cross. Everything about our faith, um, every mass we attend, takes us to the center of the mass, takes us to the cross. So, um, I, I personally believe in that. I don't know that, I, I wish I could live it better than I do, you know, that we're asked to give ourselves to the cross and make a greater place for suffering in our lives. Um, but um, let me ask this and I'd like a quick response just not long I remember when Suzanne and I were at College of Notre Dame in, in uh, Belmont and one of the older women in a marriage said looking back on her and her husband's life together and she, came, she made this comment you know, it was, it was maybe a dinner, I don't know. We were at a reception at the school, I can't remember. But she said, when she and her husband looked back, the favorite time, the, the most special time for her and her husband were their struggles. And there's so many, so many of the Orthodox Jews who maintain that same, strictly that same position, that the greatest time for the Jews was the struggles in the desert that when they when they were in Egypt they they didn't have to take responsibility for themselves and when they were in the promised land everything went bad they got spoiled it was in the desert when they were struggling that they most discovered who they were and I, I think I, I you know I hear that a lot in couples I know Suzanne and I feel that in lots of ways that when we look back over our lives we're so thankful for our struggles together they were so important. I, I can't imagine the two of us being where we are today 
without our struggles. I do not like the cross. I mean, I, I would like to get away from it. But, um, but I'm so grateful for the struggles we've had because they've all made us better. Would you guys not agree with that? I, when I see struggle coming, I want to run away. The, the habit in me is not to. I mean, my, my, I, I don't know what my family is, because my habit is to turn around and probably, in some ways, not everybody's grateful for, but it's to take on struggles um, as much as I don't want them. Um, it's one of the qualities in our family. Um, our, our kids will say, there's not much that... <laughs> I let pass. Um, there's an understatement. Huh? I said, now there's an understatement. Did you hear Suzanne? No. She said, now there's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, One thing, I, I, I don't know if this is saying the same thing you are, but I once heard that love and suffering are synonymous. And, and I do believe that. Yeah. And so I was uh, I was just reading a book and, and uh, this woman I saw her interviewed and she made the statement and she said they've been through a lot of struggles and a lot of heartache and she says at this point in your life she says when I look back on my life she said I would not change one single yep. solitary thing because it has brought me to the moment that I am right now yeah yeah and i i i, I thought that was uh, really profound and uh and i think i i think i've known people that um damn it what do we do you know people go ahead kathy what i said i i think that i truly have have known people that have have lived that um, you know, through their suffering, they really um, came to to really appreciate the moment, you know, the end. Uh, so, but it's it's definitely difficult. Nobody likes to <laughs> right. Likes to hurt. Yep. 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 He likes to suffer. In fact, if you like to suffer. Isn't there a word for that called masochism right, or something? Right, right, <laughs> Yeah, I don't put too much stock in the terminology of modern psychologists, but yes, I, yes, I think there's... Um, our youngest couple, Jonathan and Emily, who are just a joy to us, had some had to take on some real struggles in the beginning of their marriage. Um, and Emily's response right now, she said, and she's, she's just very forthright about it, she said, if I had to do it over again, I would. They're expecting their seventh child. Um, you know, they just have a good family. Um, but she, she, she just it says what you're saying, Kathy, that looking back, um, she wouldn't change. What it did for their growth is, you know, is really good. So, okay, let's go on to C.S. Lewis. God bless. I don't have the... Um, do you have the file? It was to be printed. I don't know what's going on. Send it to me and I'll print it. Upstairs. I can't. Oh. Um, hold on. Hold on. My wife just came up with something. Um, 
Wow, Doc. Hold on, you guys. Sorry. Um, um, wow, good for you. Hold on. Okay, let's go back to, sorry, we're having troubles with the printer here, but um, C.S. Lewis's argument is basically this, if I can put it in a nutshell. Up until the advent of the sciences, the applied sciences, there was this shared understanding that there was a reality to the world, that God had created the world, you know this from Plato, you know it from St. Thomas, you know it from Boethius, all the Shakespeare. There is a reality there, or something there. C.S. Lewis calls it the trunk, or the Tao. And it's on that that we work. It's from that that we take our lives. We're like branches, for in Christ's metaphor, was the vine. Um, but in the modern world, um, with, the, with the effect of the applied sciences, um, we have no basis if we look to science for making judgments of value. There is nothing there that's empirical, whatever we're going to dis discover. Um, so the problem in the ancient world was, um, and it goes back to actually to Fred's question, is there a nature to the soul? And if there is, what is it? And how do we order that soul? That was Plato's great task. It's, it's actually, it's, it's assumed in all the works we've been reading. And um, if there is an order to the world, um, how do we conform to it? So if we hear the Old Testament readings, we shouldn't be surprised if we keep hearing language about being just, the just man, or following God's commandments, to do everything in terms of just, to be one with our own nature and one with the order of the universe. But that's gone in the modern world um, because of the assumptions of modern science. And, and by the way, I just want to make a, just a, not miss a point, there's a, there's a serious difference between science as it was understood up until, let's say, the 16th century and modern sciences. Sciences had a much more inclusive meaning, say, for St. Thomas or um, others than it, than it does today. But the task that humans faced then was how to order our souls, what we had to do to learn to be just, and after Christ, how to love. Um, the, the task of the modern is different because the modern denies that there is any order that there, this God or this just order that we have to, um, that because it's not there, we can make of reality whatever we want. Um, so in the first chapter, he, he took on these educators who were making the point 
that all statements, judgments of value are only projections of something inside of us. They're not real. They're just reflections of whatever we happen to feel in response to something. And he went on to show that if we took that seriously, we'd see there's a serious mistake because going back to his example at the waterfall, um, the feeling that you'd have in the presence of a waterfall would not be, you know, that I have pretty feelings. It would be, I have humble feelings. I'm in the presence of something extraordinary. In the second chapter, he makes the point that um, if we don't begin with something self-evident, we have no way of beginning um, to reason our way to a conclusion. That all judgments of value are axiomatic, they're self-evident. So the judgment, the, the, the axiom, the proposition, the imperative to obey your parents is self-evidently true. If you don't accept that, Lewis is claiming, if you try to find a ground for that, you'll go on infinitely because you won't find a ground. That truth is self-evident in itself. If you turn to the sciences, you won't find it. If you turn to an assumption of your own, you'll find it. So all of his appendices um, are contain illustrations of all these moral maxims, which he's saying are the ground of rationality itself. Obey your parents, treat others well, do unto others what you would do. You know, I mean, he's included um, Babylon, Asia, Egypt, Africa. He's taken those things as a way of showing they're universal. Those are self-evident truths. They're the basis of arguing. So you'd say, if it's good to obey your parents, say in a syllogism, and Jane, who is your mother, asks you to empty the garbage, it's good to take the garbage out. He also makes that wonderful argument that you, if you begin in an impair or a, um, indicative mood, you cannot ever include in an imperative. And I, I tried to cover that well last week, that, I mean thoroughly last week, because I think some of you seemed a little bit confused about it. In, just, um, indicative just means describing something. This is so. Um, he's sleeping upstairs. He's sleeping on the couch. Um, the imperative is sleep on the couch. She thinks her husband's misbehaving. Sleep on the couch tonight. You know, it's a do this. You, if you begin in an indicative, you can never get out of the indicative. That's where you'll end. So she, he's making the point that to, to conclude in an imperative means you have to begin in an imperative. You have to begin with a self-evident premise in order to arrive at a, at, or, or self-evident in the imperative to arrive at a, at a conclusion. In the, um, and then he, um, he, he went on to conclude um, that um, we ask, uh, um, um, actually it was an interesting argument. He says that most of the moderns who begin with these assumptions actually end up turning to traditional notions to make their arguments, but that means they go back to the Tao, um, even if they don't want to acknowledge it, because most don't want to assume that there's a reality there, that nature's just chance, it, it's a random event, it's according to blind evolution, whatever the starting proposition is. 
he ends chapter 2 with this um, with this thought you say we shall have no values at all if we step outside the Tao. Very well. We shall probably find that we can get on quite comfortably without them. The modern's going to say. Um, we don't need them. Um, so um, let's make our world. Let's create it the way we want. Let us regard all ideas of what we ought to do simply as an interesting psychological survival. Let us step right out of all that and start doing what we like. Let us decide for ourselves what man is to be and make him into that. Not on any ground of imagined value, but because we want him to be such. Now you know that that's true. Um, people will make all, they'll make sex changes. They will create robots and they will say that humans are nothing more than sophisticated kinds of robots. So the modern world looks at the human being, not certainly not the way Dante or Shakespeare or the people, you know, the people we've been reading, um, they look at humans as this strange product of evolutionary forces that seem to have some capacity for intelligence, and they think with their own intelligence they can recreate something in its image, like a robot, or, or we can change sex, or we can do whatever we want if we have the technological means by which to do it. Let us decide for ourselves what man is to be and make him into that, not on any ground of imagined value, but because we want him to be such. Having mastered our environment, let us now master ourselves and choose our own destiny. This is a very possible position, and those who hold it cannot be accused of self-contradiction like the half-hearted skeptics who still hope to find real values when they have debunked the traditional ones. Because we know, I mean, that, that what he's responding to partly, he, he made clear in that first chapter, is that the tendency of the modern mind, because it's isolated, it doesn't stand against a backdrop, is to debunk things, to put them down, um, their offenses against rationality. Uh, remember that the, the argument in the first chapter was that one of the most important things we need today are good hearts, because the intellect, when it's left alone, can put things down. It degrades things. Um, he said that the pressing need of the moment in education was to develop good hearts that it's, it's through our hearts, our capacity to love, that we are most human. Um, this is the rejection of the concept of value altogether. I shall need another lecture to consider it. So he begins chapter 3 with this conclusion from 2, that having dismissed reality, the Tao, the natural law condition, being, God's order, whatever term we want to give it, we can create our own world and now um, because of the power that science has given us and the knowledge <coughs> we have the technological means by which to do that that's his premise now i want to start three with that starting point but any questions up to this time is everybody clear on what lewis has been doing up to this point kathy you've got your hand up you did uh i don't know if this is, it goes into what you're saying, you're talking about the natural law. If this happens, what happens to natural consequences? They just are, there is no such thing as, if you do this, this will happen. Anybody want to answer that? 
what what let's say let's just I mean if take hypothetically if 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 Kathy's working off of what Lewis is saying that you know the modern man says let's do this and suddenly there's unforeseen consequences I think you're asking what will he do what will his response to that be because he's no longer in the Tao he can't judge himself against another reality to which he holds himself right. so what what does he do when consequences go bad that's your question Kathy it is it's almost like he eliminates natural consequences he doesn't even consider that there are such a thing as natural consequences well, that, he, you, you are correct because it doesn't fit with what he wants to believe. Okay. So what happens is, is you end up forming some reality that really isn't real. And we see it today in the transgender stuff and, you know, there's all sorts of political stuff that you see this, you're like, this isn't even real. You know, the guy claims he's a woman, but he's a bit, what? Right? Makes no sense. But so... Even and if you take, let's say, take the extreme, take communism in Russia, you can lie for about a hundred years. Eventually, it fails. Right? Eventually, reality is, you know, gravity always works. Right? I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. reality will always come back, but they will do whatever they can to keep their to keep whatever view that I guess helps them sleep better at night <laughs> alive. Yeah. Well, in other words, no matter what they say or what they say they believe. If it's not real, there still is a real consequences to their action. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Be because when you were talking, it was like, you know, it was like, where did, where does um, natural consequences come? Yeah. I mean, yeah. You, you teach your children, uh, you know, consequences. If you don't take out the garbage, this is happen i mean those aren't natural those are impl uh, imposed consequences but there is such a thing as natural consequences right right and and i was kind of wondering but you, i understand what you're saying fred thank you um yeah i think, I think isn't it perhaps a, a false belief on the part of people who are doing this that science or technology or innovation or something will mitigate the worst of those possibilities that we consider today are very real natural responses or natural reactions to the extent that they don't mitigate or correct it or eliminate the problem that's where the reality has to still exist right Carl, Carl can you flesh that out with an example I mean I, I could I, I couldn't agree with you well, more climate, but climate change go ahead flesh it out can you many people don't they, they have no regard for what's going on, don't believe that we need to make a change in our life, in our, our use of resources, and are willing to take the chance that we'll find ways to overcome the problems that are foreseen. Yeah. Yeah. Kathy, one of the interesting aspects of the question you raise is, um, it, Lewis doesn't speak to it, but, but I think your question goes to it. Reality keeps asserting itself. All of the literature that we've been reading does that, you know, that so my surface response to your question is, for anybody who believes these things, the people that we're talking about right now, I think their response to natural consequences would be what we would call denial, mm -hmm. um, minimizing, rationalizing, explaining away. We all know those terms. I mean, they're going to use their mind 
to minimize, put away, do everything they can to get around them. I mean, we know that's hell, by the way. That's uh -huh. that's Dante's hell. But um, but in a, I think at a deeper level, what we all know or believe is that no matter how much people resist things, nature keeps asserting itself. It was true for Homer. It, you know, it's been true for us from the beginning. When the when the Phaeacians wanted to believe that they could take their ships across the ocean without punishment, remember when they took Odysseus home and dropped him off, Poseidon dumped him out and on their ship because of their hubris. They wanted to deny nature. So mm -hmm. every every great poet we've read knows that there is a nature there. And human beings can keep denying it. We, we know that. Humans are capable of that. But the, so the surface answer to me is there are all sorts of rationalizing things we do to get around it. But the irony is, and it seems to me it's one of the reasons so much of the literature that we, we've been reading is full of ironies, is because there's something there that keeps reminding people that there are, you know, Macbeth's going to have to come up against you know, trying to take the throne. We can we can go into every work we've ever read and and find the same sort of thing going on. Um, let me let me let me go to Lewis begins chapter three with that. I've been looking at the the epi, the epigraphs because they're important. You remember each chapter begins with a with a quote from a work. This one begins with this epigraph from Bunyan. It came burning hot into my mind, whatever he said and however he flattered. When he got me to his house, he would sell me for a slave. I was thinking of Hansel, Hansel and Gretel. You know, you can all find your own examples that we all know stories or parables of something tempting somebody, or, or Faustus. It's probably the most sophisticated adult thing. Faustus sold his soul to the devil. He thought he would get all this power in return and lost his soul. Um, that there are some things that tempt us on um, as if they would satisfy all of our desires. And without knowing it, we make this trade-off. So we give ourselves to this thing, whatever. It could be work. It could be a family. It can be drugs. I mean, drink, whatever. And suddenly we find this thing that we wanted so much begins to have a power over us. So instead of assuming that we were the ones in control and the choices that we make, we find out that um, our wills are weakened and we have less ability in the choices we make because of what we've given ourselves to. Let it be what it, let it be work, let it be drugs, whatever it is. So he begins chapter three with this um, anecdote um, he says on page 65, man conquest. So remember, the end of two brings us to this point. We've reached a point in the modern world um, in which we think um, there's no reality there, and through the power that we've been given by the sciences, we can create our own world, a virtual reality. And in that sense, we become masters of nature. So that's his argument to this point. Beginning of three, he says, man conquest of nature is an expression often used to describe the progress of applied science. Man has nature whacked, said someone to a friend of mine long, not long ago. In their context, the words had a certain tragic beauty, for the speaker was dying of tuberculosis. 
No matter, he said, I know I'm one of the casualties. Of course there are casualties on the winning as well as on the losing side. But that doesn't alter the fact that it's winning. His belief was the technology will... That, wait, hold, let, me try, let me back up. The assumption of the way he looks at the world, this man, is that there is an inevitable progress. That modern man is evolving in a state of progression. He will always get better. And we know that there are lots of people who believe that today, the ideal of progression. If you look back at history, we've talked about this, if you look back at the first city, Enoch, Troy, all of them, you'll see the same conditions that existed that exist today existed then. There were good cities, bad cities, good people, bad people. History shows that's really an invariable that we live um, more comfortable lives be, in terms of material comfort than any civilization before, but in terms of our moral behavior, um, we're very little different from the people who lived 3,000 years ago. This man is assuming an ideal of progress. So he says to himself, I know I'm one of the casualties, but he believes one day this thing will be conquered and that scientific technology will conquer all problems. But that doesn't alter the fact that it is winning. Okay. Now, what Lewis does to begin this chapter is take three examples. The, the airplane, the wireless, the radio, and contraceptive. And he says on page 66, In a civilized community in peacetime, anyone who can pay for them may use these things, but it cannot strictly be said that when he does so, he's exercising his own proper or individual power over nature. If I pay you to carry me, I am not therefore myself a strong man. Any or all of the things I have mentioned can be withheld from some men by other men, by those who sell or those who allow, those who own the sources of production or those who make it. That's why we want, I th that's why lots of people want socialism, because they believe with a socialistic government, people, um, dis the distribution of economic goods will be equal for everybody. So nobody will be in want. What we call man's power is in reality a power possessed by some men which they may or may not allow other men to profit by. Again, as regard the powers manifested in the airplane or the wireless, the radio. Man is as much the patient or subject as the possessor since he's the target both for bombs and for propaganda. So an airplane can help us travel but it can also be a means of destroying cities. The radio can give us pleasure, but it also can um, pass on propaganda to us. By contraception, simply, they are denied existence by contraception used as a means of selected breeding. They are, without their concurring voice, made to be what one generation, for its own reasons, may choose to prefer. From this point of view, what we call man's power over nature turns out to be a power exercised by some men over other, with nature as its instrument. Um, he elaborates on contraceptions by showing that it can actually affect generations because it can determine who's born, who's not, um, what can be, how many, how many not. Um, I 
I want to just, what I'd like to do is just go through some of the arguments, but I want to stop here. Anybody have any questions about what he's doing up to this point? Okay, page 71. It goes to Fred's question and a crucial one for Plato and for everybody. C.S. Lewis, certainly all of us. Plato was concerned enough about it to make it the one of the center points of the Republic. How do you educate people um, in order to help them become just? Because remember the Republic begins with one of the men asserting that justice is the power of the stronger over the weaker. Who's ever the stronger can determine justice. Who's ever's in power. That, that's why democratic races are so crucial. If somebody gets power, they can do something. They have the power to do it, to make something so. So that, that problem was as um, important for Plato as it is for us today. But Lewis says, but the problem is um, exasperated today for a number of reasons. Top of 71. But the man-molders of the New Age will be armed with the powers of an, omni an omnicompetent state and an irresistible scientific technique. We shall get at last a race of conditioners who really can cut out all posterity in what they shape as they please. The second difference is that even more importantly, in the older systems, both the kind of man the teachers wished to produce and the motives for producing him were the product were prescribed by the Tao, a norm to which the teachers themselves were subject and from which they claim no liberty to depart. So up to the, I mean, he's just reinforcing the point, but to me more poignantly, in the old world there was a reality to be passed on. Because there were, the teachers were subject themselves to it. They had to be judged by it, guided by it. So if they failed in some way, they would come under judgment. He's saying today that's not true because the Tao's no longer there. If there's no reality against which to measure what you're doing, how can you critique yourself? On what basis do you measure your actions? I mean, I'm sure there, you know, people are going to say effectiveness or in terms of whatever criteria they want to set up. They did not cut men to some pattern they had chosen. They handed on what they had received. They initiated the young neophyte into the mystery of humanity which overarched him and them alike. It was but old birds teaching young birds to fly. This will be changed. Values are, are now mere natural phenomena. Judgments of value are to be produced in the pupil as part of the conditioning. Is that clear? There's no longer a reality. Judgments now become part of what we're dealing with as raw data. We can change them at our will because there is no reality. Whatever doubt there is will be the product, not the motive of education. The conditioners have been emancipated from all that. It's one more part of nature which they've conquered. Okay. Um, on page 76... By the logic of their position, they must take their impulses as they come from chance. That is, you, if you ask a conditioner what the basis remember his argument, book two, if you ask the conditioner what the rational basis is of their position, they'll be able to say, they'll say instinct. I mean, they'll make something up, self-preservation, preserving the species, whatever it will be. But his point is, every one of those things has its roots in the Tao. 
they keep going back to it, but it makes no sense. If they're true to the position they're taking, they have to say it's chance, whatever's there. 76. By the logic of their position, they must just take their impulses as they come from chance, and chance here means nature. It's from heredity, digestion, the weather, the association of ideas, that the motives of the conditioners will spring. Their extreme rationalism, by seeing through all rational motives, leaves them creatures of wholly irrational behavior. If you will not obey the Tao, or else commit suicide, obedience to impulse, and therefore in the long run to mere nature, is the only course left open. Um, he, in 77, he describes nature, and he sets it off against the spiritual, the conscious, you know, everything like that. <clears throat> but I think the most important line at the bottom of 77 is this. If we take the rest of the list of opposites, natural, spiritual, conscious, unconscious, I think we can get a rough idea of what men have meant by nature and what it is they oppose to her. Nature seems to be the spatial and temporal as distinct from what is less fully so or not at all. She seems, to the, she seems to be the world of quantity as against the world of quality, of objects against consciousness of the bound, as against the wholly or partially autonomous. Of that, that is, we have choice. We have some autonomy as human beings. We can choose between things. Nature can't. Of that which knows no values against that which both has and perceives value, of efficient causes, or in some modern systems, of no causality at all, as against final causes. Um, efficient causes means a tree falls, it'll hit another tree, and it'll fall. A fire starts in one tree, it'll produce a fire in another. Okay? So efficient causes is one aspect of nature. Hit a, hit a cue ball into a ball, and it'll send the other ball into motion. It's an efficient cause. Humans act with some sense of a final cause. We act because we have some sense of a purpose. Um, we consciously make decisions because we're concerned about final ends. Even if nature has final ends, and I think Lewis would argue that they do, that the end of a flower is to be a beautiful flower, a, a flower can't make a choice about covering itself when it rains or covering up in a, you know, a, it can't help itself in the face of dangers. We can. Now, I take it that when we understand a thing analytically and then dominate and use it for our own convenience, we reduce it to the level of nature in the sense that we suspend our judgments of value about it, ignore its final cause, if any, and treat it in terms of quantity. Now, be patient. Let me just read again. It's a little bit more because I want to take this up. 79. From this point of view, the conquest of nature appears in a new light. We reduce things to mere nature in order that we may conquer them. We are always conquering nature because nature is the name for what we have to some extent conquered. The price of conquest is to treat a thing as mere nature. Every conquest over nature increases her domain. The stars do not become nature till we can weigh and measure them. The soul does not become nature till we can psychoanalyze her. The resting of powers from nature is also the surrendering of things to nature. As long as this process stops short of the final stage, we may well hold that the gain outweighs the loss. 
So he's, he's talking about the, the, the tendency on the part of modern science to reduce things to quantity because the habit of mind is mathematical. It deals with quantities. So it's an abstraction from a thing. On page 78, to go back to the page before, he said, we do not look at trees either as dryads or as beautiful objects while we cut them into beams. The first man who did so may have felt the price keenly, and the bleeding trees in Virgil and Spencer may be far of echoes of that primeval sense of impiety. The stars lost their divinity as astronomy developed, and the dying god has no place in chemical agriculture. I want to take a second here. You guys all read this because we've done Homer and Virgil together. You remember in the Greek world, you could not go into a river and not be aware that you were in the presence of something divine because the gods inhabited nature in the river, in the trees, wherever they were. When, uh, when Odysseus asked the Phaeacians to take him home, they prided themselves because of their technology. They made these ships so well, like computers, that they could go across the sea without fear of anything happening. That's why Poseidon dumped that mountain on them. Because to have that kind of hubris, to think that you could master nature, was to master the gods. So he's saying, go back to that ancient world when there was, in primitive man, a sense that there were, the, the gods were here. St. Francis was closer to that when he said, brother, son, sister, moon. He looked at things in nature as if they were things capable of love. Because according to St. Thomas's philosophy, which is pretty sound, there's nothing that God made that isn't motivated by love. The sunflower turning towards the sun cannot be reduced to mere quantitative terms mathematically. St. Thomas would say the appetites, the energies of that flower are an expression of love of the good, that all things in nature are moving towards the good. When the scientific worldview intervenes, it reduces things to objects, to quantifiable thing, abstractions. So he's saying right now that um, what this effort has produced is, is that in our effort um, to master nature, we end up turning things into objects in order to fulfill this quest of mastery, to control things. Um, I love his line at the end. I want to skip to it at the, at the end because I think it's so good on page 86 just before he concludes. He says, Perhaps I'm asking the impossibilities. Perhaps in the nature of things, analytical understanding must always be a basilisk which kills what it sees and only sees by killing. Let me like one last comment and then turn this over to you guys for a second. So the tendency of the human mind when it understands things is to objectify them, to turn a tree into an ob object. I know this. That's the object of my understanding. We do that with human beings. We turn each other into objects through our minds. When we do that, we do it feeling like it gives us some control over each other. We can use things. So he's, the, 
the danger he's warning us off of is to be careful because it's through our analytical minds that we come to understand something that we most put into effect this wanting to master, to control things, to have them fit our understanding of things. Now let me stop here because um, we're getting close to the end of this um, um, this final chapter. Any any questions? Um, any questions about what Lewis is saying to this point, or arguments, or reservations, or yes, <laughs> Mark, go. Uh, question is, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> you want to answer that? <laughs> what, um, Doc, part help of, me out here. Well, part of it I get, but part of it you're you're trying to allude, you know, relate things to, okay, St. Francis and some other, other things, you know, and the world isn't run off emotion and love and things like that. It's not. And to think it is, to, you know, there are there are you know things that we understand about it and things that we don't understand. But it's like you know to think that anything doesn't happen because you know it's not. I guess I don't know how you put it. The sunflower turns to the sun because of God's love. I mean that's a bunch of crap. I mean, good lord. <laughs> Here, let me let me see if I can elaborate on that to to reassure you or quiet that soul of yours, Mark. Let me, let me see if I can flush this out a little bit. St. Thomas was a great scientist. He wouldn't be seen as a scientist today, but St. Thomas would say, there's a difference between um, something that can be demonstrated through reason. That's the basis of science, if you can make a demonstration. He would have never gone as far as the modern empiricist scientists would say that nothing's real unless you can measure it observably, something like that. So. I'm saying this because I want to try to protect reason here as much as I can. If you read Thomas long enough, you can't you can't read Thomas anywhere without um, seeing reason at work, whatever the question is, and it always goes to existence. It's never an idea. If you go to Plato, Plato will always ask what a thing is and its essence. Plato will always leave you in an idea, in essence. That's a failure on Plato's part. St. Thomas never will do that because he's following Aristotle. Every one of his questions is whether something is or is not. So to answer it, you always have to go to something that's existing. What is? In his treaty on the passions, he's saying that um, everything in nature is governed by... Now hold on before you get your hackles up here. Everything in nature is governed by appetites. A, a movement towards something. And he distinguishes between the appetites in the plant life, the appetite for life or goodness or health, the appetite in animals, in, in which case you have animals who have sensory experiences, imagination, you know, primitive, um, and human beings who have free will. And one of the distinctions he makes between human beings and, let's say, plant life, is that what distinguishes human beings from the rest of creation is they have a power of apprehension in themselves. Human can apprehend things and because they can they can make choices. 
So if I see a good piece of food, I can choose that over a bad or poison. Or um, if um, if I've there's a glass of wine there and I've had too much to drink, I can turn away and say I'd better you know turn away and stop. Humans can use choices because they they have a power of apprehension. Saint Thomas says that. Um, Remember going back to the soul and its three faculties, reason, the, what he called the intellect of appetites and the appetites. God, I should put this up on a screen. Remember the soul, reason, the um, intellect of appetites, those appetites that are directed towards noble things, truth, beauty, oneness, all those, and the physical appetites, those things that are directed towards bodily things. The intellect of appetites are the will. The will is different from the lower appetites because it can move towards the good as apprehended. So humans can, can move towards justice in a particular case because they can apprehend justice and try to apply it. So the intellect, the will, the physical appetites. Man is distinct because he has an apprehensive power in himself. Okay, he says, plants, this is crucial, Mark, for what's going on, plants have an apprehensive power in them according to their, the creator who made them. So every plant has, well, hold on, every plant has in its nature an end. Every rose moves towards its end to become, to fulfill its beauty as a road. Every pine tree, every wolf, I mean, you go wherever you want in nature. Everything in creation has an order, a beauty, and a purpose. And the apprehensive power exists in it, not in that thing itself, but in the one who made it. So even though it's not using a conscious free will, a rose, if it's, I mean, if, it, if its environment's good, will move towards its own end. It will fulfill its destiny as a rose. Same thing with a pine tree or... So for Thomas, in St. Thomas's universe, it would have been absurd for him to say what a modern would say, that love, what made the universe was a God of love. Now just be patient with me, I'm sorry this is so long. What made the universe was a God of love, and that love permeates this universe. So you can't look at anything, a cub, a wolf, hunt, hunting, killing another animal, a rabbit, for food. He's not doing evil. He's doing good. He's, he wants to feed his... There's nothing malicious about a wolf doing that. Everything in nature is moves itself according to the good that's inherent in its nature. The modern Protestant world, the modern scientific world has taken that away and made nature either nothing or bad. Now just give me one more second. So when you enter the modern world, you've left a world that could be explained in concrete particular terms, in terms of the God who made it, and you've entered a world of the sciences in which now the governing way of looking at things is mathematical. It's through abstractions. So when you look at a, when you look at a bush, the bleeding bush, say in Virgil, all you're doing is looking at a bush in terms that you can quantify. So the star is something that no longer will awake romantic feelings in you. It's a thing of beauty. It's in the heavens. You look at it in terms of how long it will burn, what its gases are, how it emits it. You know, you'll, you'll mathematically turn it into an object um, in quantifiable terms. 
So you can say it's ridiculous and he doesn't know what he's meaning. The, I, I don't want to go to that myself. What I'm trying to do is just lay out two very different ways of looking at the world. One was medieval, one's modern. When St. Francis, when St. Francis lived, um, it was close to the beginnings of modern science. Um, empiricist ways of thinking were already beginning to take over. So when he said, brother, sun, sister, noon, noon, moon, he wasn't just being romantic or full of illusions. It was his way of saying, the God who made creation was a God of love. I love. These things are good. It's good to love them and to see, to see ourselves in our world in those terms. Um, Suzanne and I both go to St. Francis. It's our church. Sometimes it bothers me because Saint, as you know, I mean, you know this if you didn't know it before, you knew it from a reading of the Divine Comedy, you know, particularly in the Purgatory, in the Paradiso, that Saint Francis gave himself up to a life of poverty because he believed it was only by doing that, by turning away from things that he could learn to love the way Christ did. So you can say it's nonsense. I happen to believe it's not, but but the point I'm making is it's two different ways of looking at the world. So many of the works that we've been reading, I mean, hopefully from my perspective, my great hope is that it helps us to see that there are things going on in the world worth loving that so often we don't see. And one of the things the poets have done for us, not rare poets, because all the poets don't do this, one of the things they do is they help us to see that there's some good going on in the world that we don't see. It's worthy of being loved. Anyway, Mark, go ahead. Do you want to... I guess I'm just struggling with the fact that a plant is moving to its own end. A plant is a plant that does what it does. There's no emotion, there's no love, there's no hate, there's no nothing. It is what it is. <laughs> People, different, right? I, I, I just, it makes no sense to me. It makes yeah, zero me, sense to me. Yeah, let me just fit in then. Yeah. Fred's, Fred's got no, his no, hand. No, no, I don't want to take up any more time. I'm just saying. No, no, but I do. I do. Whether, really, you, really whether you do or not, I do. Um, when a plant's, just to follow that up, a good scientist would say more than you're saying. Um, a plant isn't just doing what it's doing. If a, if a, I mean, you take a tree in a forest, a, a tree has to have sunlight, it has to have rain, it takes life from the earth. You can't, truly, you cannot look at, and every good scientist would say this, Mark, this is not me blowing off of defending something. Everything in creation can only be understood in relation to something else. That's Every good scientist would know that. So if you look at a tree, the last thing you could say is only just being a tree, because it's, it's only going to be as healthy as it's capable of responding to its environment. The rain, the sun, the soil, That'd be yeah. true of plants. If you watch plants during the day, I'm, I'm using a sunflower as an example. The sunflower plants will will move towards light. They'll just incline that way. Yeah. Um, because it's in their nature, it's in their nature to live, to, to have life. And but um, you say it's in their nature that almost gives it some sort of consciousness. No. Mm. I mean, it, it is what it, I mean, it, no, I, I've been really clear about that, Mark. I've been really clear. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, I was really, you know, if you take plant, animal, and human life, this whole thing about apprehensive power, consciousness, only exists in humans. But what Thomas was doing was showing that you can explain everything in creation 
um, by a principle. So, Fred, you go ahead. You've got... I, as a math and science guy, I just got to <laughs> say one thing. That I, I don't believe that science and natural law have to be at odds with each, with each other. In fact, I believe the exact opposite. And I'll, and I'll give you the best example I can come up with. We're talking about a sunflower, which turns itself to the sun in a, in a natural way. Well, Fibonacci came out with a Fibonacci sequence. And what he describes in that is that the physical construct of the sunflower is absolutely perfectly created in order to maximize the amount of sun it can possibly get for its shape. Right. Now, as, as a math and science guy, I don't, I don't see that as some obstruction to natural law. I, I see it quite differently. I see divinity in that. I mean, man can't create that. So to me, it's all science is doing is, in a, in a way, helping us understand the immense nature of natural law. So I, I guess I just get offended a little bit when we talk about, when you say science, if you're talking about philosophy, us math and science guys think philosophers are, or or psychologists, excuse me, psychologists are, are nuts. <laughs> and so when you talk about science to me, I'm talking mathematics, engineering, and everything I've ever been involved in in my 40 years of doing this just increases my ability to appreciate the fact that there's something out there that's much bigger than us. Yeah. yeah. Enough said. No, well, no, I mean, I hope you, I, I'm, I'm sorry if I said anything to, um, I, to give an other, I mean, an impression I don't want to give. I think we've been together long enough, and I think in our talks we've had together, I think you know, that I, I have the same belief, there's a difference between us in that regard, that one of my great sorrows, one of the grievances for me personally in our age is that not enough is being done to reconcile the sciences with natural philosophy. Um, because I believe they're ultimately reconcilable. The, I mean, just to add something right now, I, I, and maybe I'm being too narrow here, I hope I'm not. I think you're in a, in a rare position because of your Christian faith you know, there are lots of scientists who don't share your faith, um, who won't who won't look at something and see divinity. You just said you did. That doesn't surprise me. Um, I, I I'm not enough up in the field, but I, I don't I I know there are being there are books that are being written that are trying to reconcile science and um, natural philosophy. I've been encouraging you to write for a couple of years. I really wish you would because I I just think more has to be done there, but. But one of the interesting drawbacks to that reconciliation, I don't know how anybody's going to do it, is that science by itself cannot prove the existence of God. And lots of scientists won't go there. I know Einstein, um, who was a genius, said he believed in God, and, and lots of the brilliant scientists do. I'm not sure that that's true of the most scientists. I mean, lots of scientists um, fit into the, you know, the way Lewis is is describing the, the applied sciences today. So um, I certainly, I don't want to be giving the impression that I'm, um, that I don't think the sciences are good. I think too, 
the sciences, particularly because of how they're popularized, don't do justice to the sciences. Let me let me quote this line too because it's before we go any farther because I I want to offer St. Thomas's thought on this. I'm completely in agreement with you, Fred. Um, at the towards the end of his essay, he says um, that he he wants to hold. He says on page eighty-two, nothing I can say will prevent some people from describing this lecture as an attack on science. I mean, I hope I'm not. That's was not my end. I'm responding to a habit in the modern mind that's become general, that's affected people. And if you look at what's going on in education today, you just see it. So I mean, we. We grieve over it so many of when we hear what's going on in the classroom. I deny the charge, of course. In real natural philosophers, there are some now alive, I'd say not many, um, will perceive that in defending what I defend inter alia, alia um, the value of knowledge, which must die like every other when its room in the Tao are cut, but I can go farther than that. I even suggest that from science herself, the cure might come. I've described as a, a magician's bargain that process whereby man surrenders object ever object and finally himself to nature in return for power. And I meant what I said. The fact that the scientist has succeeded where the magician failed has put such a wide contrast between them in popular thought that the real story of the birth of science is misunderstood. I just want to make a, a point clear here. He's saying that um, what enters the world in the 17th century with Bacon is real. Its effects are real. And I don't know if any of you have read Bacon's work, but what Bacon attempted to do was replace um, Aristotle. He called it the new organon. Aristotle said that the principal end of the physics was speculative to understand the nature of things. Here's an interesting fact. If you've all read Bacon, who is looked at as the precursor of the modern sciences, I'm not making this up. Go read him. Bacon took this position he, in his new organon in replacing Aristotle. He said, that's a problem. Aristotle was wrong. He said, and this is what's amazing about it. It's just stunning. He said he wanted to go back to a pre-lapsarian condition where man had the power to control nature, to dominate it. That the real purpose of the sciences should be to control nature, to master it. That's the beginning of modern sciences. He's looked at this precursor. What, what Lewis is arguing against is that attitude in man that approaches nature as if by understanding it, we have power over it. We can do something as we will. That's the force of his whole argument. Um, Knowledge equals power. The more we know over something, the more control we have over it. Okay? Bacon is making this claim. Um, he wants to reestablish the basis of sciences on a prelapsarian where we're closer to God and Adam before the fall by being able to control nature, make it do what we want. It's led to the modern I don't know what to call it, preoccupation with technology, attempt to master everything, it goes back to what we've been saying all along. So the point that he's making here is that, um, that for people to associate magic with the Middle Ages is erroneous. That magic and science really come together at that point, roughly 16th century, 
because they have the same end. The end of magic is to get power over something, control it, make it do what we want. And the end of science. Science is healthier. Lewis is not disputing this, but here's where he goes. And I think there's something to be taken seriously. The ser this is 83. The serious magical endeavor and the serious scientific endeavor are twins. One was sickly and died, the other strong and throve, but they were twins. They were born in the same impulse. Um, on page 85, talking about the help he hopes will come from the sciences. The regenerate science which I have in mind, because he says I, he, he's, he's not arguing against science, to see him that way is to mistake what he's doing. He's trying to critique a general habit of mind which is taking over, the, that's, that's lost something of what we once had as a people. The regenerate science which I have in mind would not do even to minerals and vegetables what modern science threatens to do to man himself. When it explained, it would not explain away. When it spoke of the parts, it would remember the whole. While studying the it, it would not lose what Martin Buber called the thou situation. The analogy between the Tao of man and the instincts of an animal species would mean for it new light cast on the unknown thing. St. Thomas would say this, the tendency of the rational intellect by itself is to put things in abstractions, to know them by their essences as objects. It's to turn things into objects. Men and women, I'm trusting we all know this, we can use each other for our own selfish motives. It's a human, it's a, one of the effects of the fall to treat each other as objects. St. Thomas would agree with that, but he would say love is unitive. That it's through our powers of love that we can become one with another and approach the indwelling of the Trinity. So the question is, going back to his image, remember he, he said it wasn't that um, you've got men with, um, how do you call it, in, in large shrunken heads, it's you've got men with enlarged heads and shrunken hearts that the way we know today has has lost something of a power of love. It's only when we pull our heads and our hearts together that we can stop turning things into objects through our scientific approach to them and know them in love. So the challenge that he's Lewis is presenting to the you know to get out of the arrogance of our minds and our intellects and to, and to love. Do we love people in the way we understand them? That's one of the essential challenges of this whole work. Because the danger if we don't bring love to what we do is that we turn things into objects. In that moment we think we've got control over them. We can have our way or do what we want. So the challenge is partly to all of us, it's also a challenge to people in education. You know, are people in, in education today indoctrinating according to their modern ideologies, whatever they happen to be, Freud, Marx, feminine, you can go on and on. Are they, are they passing on a way to which they themselves are subject? Or are they teaching an ideology, um, something new, um, 
because it is an expression of what they believe is this new world we're going to create for ourselves. The, the basic premise underneath Lewis's argument is um, in, a, in a world this defined in scientific terms, can we, can we bring to our approaches in the sciences the love that we are called to bring? I mean, that's certainly after Christ comes into the world because he's going to I mean, that's going to be our first call from him. Any He says in 86 to end, to reduce the Tao to a mere natural product, that is to make the Tao one more thing like the things we study, without... This is, this is so hard. If I can do it this way. Aristotle said, Aristotle said, the whole, the whole, this is in his politics, but it's in his physics too. The whole is prior to and greater than the sum of its parts. He said that in the politics. It was a way of... It was a way of making clear the individual was not sufficient to itself. That's why he made the polis greater than the individual, because he knew that an individual could never fulfill his, his promise, his potential, without a community around him. What Aristotle is saying, the whole is prior to and greater than the sum of the parts. There's a nature to man. He can't change it. It's there. There's a wholeness to him. For him to grow into who he is, we've been talking about this since our beginning, for him to grow into who he is, he cannot do it without the help of others. If in his pride he isolates himself and he thinks he doesn't need others, he's going to shrink himself. He won't be able to become who he's been given to be. That nature is given to him. He can't choose it, he can't change it. The modern world says there is no reality. I can make myself whatever I want. The difference between Aristotle and the modern world is this, and Descartes makes it clear. For Descartes, the whole is the sum of its parts, period. So if you've got a car, um, if you've got a part that's broken down, you can replace it. If you've got a human being in a business, you can replace him. For Aristotle, there's a whole greater than If that doesn't make sense, go, go this way. We were created in God's image. We believe that the Trinity is the ultimate expression of that. Each one of the persons in the Trinity perfectly indwells in the other. One, one of the persons is not less than the others. There's a whole greater. That's why we call it one God. We use the term the body of Christ. It's a mystical body. We participate in it. It's greater than any one of us as individuals. When somebody dies with that understanding... A part of ourself dies with that person. That's why we don't believe in divorce the way the rest of the world does. Because when you enter into a whole, it's just more than you and whatever you want. You've entered a greater whole. The children you have partake of it. There's a whole there. Prior to greater than the sum of the parts. The modern world does not look at things that way. That's Cartesian. So the whole we're talking about is greater. When Lewis is talking about this whole, the Tao, he's talking about something absolutely foreign to the modern mind. 
So in 86, when he ends, he says, to reduce the Tao to a mere natural product is a step of that kind. Up to that point, the kind of explanation which ex explains things away may give us something, though at a heavy cost. But you cannot go explaining away. Kathy, this goes to your turn. What do you do with the natural consequences of something? The modern mind would explain it away. It's just one more thing. The nominalist world believes that there are only particular things. That's all. That's all. A Catholic is supposed to believe in universals, that there's something greater than the individual. We're a part of a larger whole. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It's good that the window should be transparent because the street or garden beyond, it, it is opaque. How if you saw through the garden too? It's no use trying to see through first principles. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. One of the questions we've been wrestling with from beginning with each work of literature that we've read is what is the whole? It can't, it is not just the sum of the parts. There is a great spiritual reality that cannot be explained just in empirical terms. There's an, what we call an action or a whole. So um, I don't think Lewis is arguing against science. What he's concerned about is that so many of the impulses of modern sciences have taken the form of wanting to control nature, to act as if there's no reality there. Fred, you and Carl would be able to better speak to this than I could. I mean, you, you know sciences. You, I mean, I, my guess is that Einstein would know that, that he would have no troubles with that, that he, he, or he wouldn't have said there's a God, that most of the really brilliant scientists know that there's something more there and that their theories are trying to get to it, to help ex use mathematical sciences and to understand it as it bears on reality. Um, or, I, or they wouldn't have made the developments they did. I, I, I can't say that with any authority, but that's my sense. Well, I can answer the question on Einstein. When he developed the general theory of relativity, one of the statements he made was, God would not play dice with the universe. He would say it again, he would what? No. God would not play dice with the universe. Flesh that out for those of us who are less... I can, we don't have enough time, but the bottom line was he was a believer. Yeah, yeah. See, I don't believe he could have come to what he came to if he didn't intuitively, in the whole mental set he brought to all his work, work with some whole intuitively that, that was the... And I'm not going to do justice to this. It was like the Tao. It was out of that backdrop because it's there that he could take his genius and push it as far into it as he did, or he wouldn't have been able to do it. He would have been on surfaces. And, I, and I, I, I mean, I don't know him well enough to know that, or even at all, but he, he was too brilliant a man. Um, Heisenberg, Borg, all those men had that sense that there was something deeper there. They could have never taken their theories as, as deeply as they did. I think Lewis is, is responding on a more pragmatic, practical level, concerned about what's going on at a popular, you know, not with the theories of scientists, what, 
what's most affecting us as human beings in our ordinary lives? Um, Tracy, do you have a question? What's your response to this, Tracy? I'm asking, this is pretty theoretical. I mean, we, you know, in works of literature, we've been grounded in concrete things. We just dealt with two works that are very much more conceptual, you know, abstract with, with Boethius and C.S. Lewis. Honestly, I'm asking for a gut response. What's your... Uh, well, my gut response to C.S. Lewis is that it scares me. It scares me because it, it's so, it seems so uh, true to my experience with artists and art people, yeah. <laughs> you know, who very much make reality what they want it to be. Yeah. And there's no reasoning with, with them. Yeah. So to me, it's, Frightening, frighteningly uh, true. Yeah, and I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> well, stand, I mean, just so I, I personally, I'm speaking honestly right now on a personal level. I feel the same way when I look when I hear about the things going on in education, with what teachers are doing in grade school and junior high and high school. God, it's just scary to. Um, you know, there are lots of good teachers in our school systems, but the system is changing. Um, um, 20 years ago, I didn't know about homeschooling. Uh, 20, 30, I mean, I really didn't know about it. I, it, was, it was just a shock to me. Now, I look at it and my own response is, I'm so glad. Um, I, I'm so glad when people are in the trenches fighting. So when they're in good schools, or, you know, are they're good teachers in school systems dealing with these things, the likelihood of their keeping their jobs is small because they're going to come under attack. I know that. I know that from personal experience of my own, broadly, at a college level, and I mean that broadly. Teachers who've lost their jobs because they they don't fit in and and they're they're not liked, and things are done to get rid of them. Um, so I'm really grateful for people who tough it out, who have the courage to stay in those fights. Um, but I'm also glad for homeschooling. Um, my own hope, my wish, I mean, it goes along the lines of what Fred was saying a minute. I so wish that people were better educated in natural philosophy and the sciences so they were grounded well enough in both to be intellectually capable of dealing with these problems. And I, I, I'm not sure that people are have the training in education to do that. That's more than a small concern for me because if if we don't do a better job at at trying to get kids intellectually capable of pulling those two worlds together, the sciences and natural philosophy, it's just a. I mean, it's 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 a real struggle. I mean, it's it's a real problem that we're looking at. Debbie, did you have something you've been you've looked meditative this whole time? have um, a really grave concern um, uh, but I do agree with Fred that um, 
science is not mutually exclusive to um, natural philosophy. I mean, th those are not diametrically opposed. Um, having having an education in, in science uh, myself, um, you know, um, and maybe it's because of our age. I don't know. Maybe because we get it. Maybe because we haven't been indoctrinated as much as some others have been indoctrinated, and we we sort of get it. We sort of understand. Um, but it it's really it's alarming to me what is what is happening. And and it used to just be on college campuses, um, but it's not any longer. It's just not. It is throughout the education system, and it's it's alarming. Um, and and I know personally some some really really fine teachers who have just um, they uh, were forced out. That um, you know had had either either they just couldn't take it anymore, or it was just it was banging their head against the wall all the time. So um, it's it's alarming. It really is. It's it's really it's really frightening. Yeah. Carl, go ahead. You go ahead. Yeah, I just have a couple comments and some things maybe to ponder. Um, first of all, Fred, thank you very much for defending science, technology, math, engineering, all of those things. And Bob, you do come across sometimes. Do I? As, I don't. As a little bit farther down that you know slippery slope than you expressed tonight. So thank you yeah. for helping understand better where you are from. Um, the, the second thing is um, I wanted to offer to um, people on this forum um, some insight into future technologies and artificial intelligence um, through uh, a, a, a recent uh, entry into television shows, a series called Next. Uh, John Slattery from Mad Men is in it and doing a great job. It's, it's, it's a Netflix. It's a Netflix offering called NEXT, Next. Um, it's kind of scary at par, in part and in pieces, um, but if you think it's not possible at all, you better reconsider things and don't get you know too out of joint about what it is presenting as somewhat of a dystopian world in the not too near future. In the not too distant future. Yeah, not too distant for, uh, future. And the third thing is I just wanted to um, make sure all of you knew about some of the advances, and this is just a quick sentence here. Uh, the next iPhone that many of you may own um, that runs on an M1 chip that was just introduced happens to be something a little different than uh, um, I experienced in my formal education as a tube-type guy, vacuum tube into transistors, transistors that would fit each one on the, you know, on the head. You could balance them on a pen or something with real wire leads coming out of them. But the M1 chip that is now in production and, and offering the, you know, some of the latest products has 16 billion, that's billion with a B, transistors in it. And it sits on a larger die than normal, but it's still small enough to fit in phones and places like that. That is just an unworldly number where we were compared to, you know, not too many decades ago. Yeah. These are changing, and it's great technology. It will probably open up new windows and doors for us, but that's just, you know, a little bit of science and, and you know, what, what we should look forward to. Thank you. <laughs>
it's it, it's interesting to hear your responses to me because I, I I've said a number of times I, I it's making me wonder about my presentation of things or the spirit in which I do things. Um, I theoretically in my mind, I mean, and I, you guys will have to make your comments here on me. Theoretically, in my mind or speculatively, theoretically, I don't have any questions about the role that science and natural philosophy or any of the humanities should play in our education. Um, I was being absolutely genuine. I said I wish that there were more work being done to reconcile the two. So, and that's real for me. That's a serious thing. When I was a tutor at Magdalen, I was asked to co-tutor in physics and biology and some other things. It was a, a real eye-opening experience for me because it was completely outside of you know my work. It was on the basis of that that I did a proposal for the whole program because I thought there were problems with it but so I don't I don't um, I don't find in myself a, um, an antagonism or a starting point of wanting to put the sciences down because I believe in knowledge I mean I'm, I'm with CS Primitch with CS Lewis but I can say quite honestly of myself that there is a skepticism that I bring to it because of what I see in the sciences and that and at that point I'm not talking about science as a theoretical and what it can do I am absolutely um, um, Carl I, I I just I don't know how what do I it, it stuns me that I what is it I can you know go on it one I mean a simple thing like this because we take a I go on the computer and I write 10 pages of something and I can do that and it passes to somebody else on this whatever this this O or one count or whatever that principle is in a, you know in the in the typing how in the world they could get uh, I've been working at writing for the last 40 years I've got a ton of stuff and it can fit in that little thumb drive you know in in one fraction of it and I look at that and think how in the world can a lifetime of writing get into a space that small so I have I have no doubts about the mathematical capacity of technology to you know to go where you're going. My concern is that at a at a more practical level in the way it plays out in our lives um, on a daily basis. One of the things that I wanted to introduce tonight we didn't get time, but I, one of the things that I wanted to introduce with Air, um, Lewis's airplane radio and contraception we didn't get to that, and I'm sorry. And I may take a few minutes with that next time. I wanted to add abortion and the computer. The computer is an extraordinary advance in technology in our world. There, I mean, there's so much positive you can say about it. Um, immediately, a hundred negative things to it come to mind. Or no, a half dozen dangerous, dangerous things come to mind. Um, the, the negative effects of it are real. I, I don't want to do anything to un underestimate, so I'm not going to downplay that. What I'm concerned about is the way in which technology has done what Lewis is talking about. We've got a computer. It's radically changed our life. What happens, what happens when a, a, a computer system gets hacked or it goes out, say for a city or a country? Abortion is a result of technological improvements in procedures and what we can do. I, I happen to believe, I mean, some of you may not share this view with me, I happen to believe that we're in the middle of a holocaust and we're pretending like it's not there. What we're doing is far worse than the Germans did in the beginning of the century, last century. We're killing babies by millions and we're doing nothing about it. 
and technology, uh, nobody's, I mean, there are pro-life groups who are answering it. All of us are implicated in it. I am. I can't, I can't speak about this as if I'm not directly in, or personally because I am. But it's one of the gravest sins in our world and it's not getting the attention it should get. People are talking about race and government and a million other things, but not abortion. We are killing people because of technology, what we've been able to bring to our world today. So my concern is, um, I, I do not want to downplay advances in science or mathematics. It's not who I am. I'm not sure what I'm saying to you guys to give that impression. But I am concerned at a practical level of what's going on with education. I'm also concerned at a practical level of what's going on in our culture to bring us down in a way that wasn't true 70 years ago. And I've got abortion particularly on my mind, but it's not just abortion. It's um, eugenics and, you know, some other things. So to me, it's a, um, it's, we've entered a world and I, the value of C.S. Lewis's essay for me is that he's going to a principle. It's rationally argued and he's, he's making a compelling case that we should be very cape, very careful of those instances when we think we've made an advance because very often in the advances we think we make we don't see the negative effects of them we often pass laws thinking they're good laws and find out 20 years later there are consequences to those laws we didn't see so to me it's a it's a i think it's a very important work for our time um fred did you have a a comment it's most I was just going to share. I mean, I think science is like anything else. It can be used for good or for bad. And what, you know, I think Carl and I are trying to focus on is the good part. And there's a real good, you know, we talked about a couple of books that that are trying to, you know, sort of put technology and theology and, and science in concert with each other. And this is one, if anybody's interested I would highly recommend. It's called Quantum Shift, and it, it sounds worse than it is. Believe me, um, it's a very the, the the science part of it is is you know very clearly defined, but it's one of the first efforts that you know I've seen where you know someone has made a conscientious effort to draw the 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 comparison between the two and how they complement each other, and it's written by uh, Heidi Ann Russell. So if you're interested, um, you know, I highly recommend it. Yeah. Let me offer this one last thought. It's we're, we're past time. Um, I, I don't know that I can say anything more that I have, but because I feel such a commitment to knowledge, I think you all know that. How I don't think thought the, the worth of, I don't think thought is given the worth that it should have. You know, I think you know that from, the work we've done. I value philosophic thought, I value scientific thought, I value any area of thought. It, it, it is one of the great gifts to us as humans and I'm sorry that, that we don't value it more than we do. So I don't have edges against science, I, speculatively, theoretically. All of these things belong together, that, but that's at a speculative theoretical um, level. My concern in our age as I'm not a historian, and I don't even think historians will get to this well. 
From my perspective as a teacher who's tried to work with the whole of history from whatever I learned going back to the beginnings with pre-Homer or the pre-Socratics and the historians there and the sciences, by the way, the materialist sciences that began that because that's our beginnings of those. When I put that together and I look at cultures, just cultures and the worldview at work in those cultures, um, I can say, Fred, with you in complete agreement, you know, science is like anything, you know, we can use it for good or bad. Guns can be used for good or bad. I mean, food, wine, no disagreement. In principle, we have, but to put it that way for me, to me is a, is a terrible simplification. When we look at our culture today and the role that science plays in the way that we deal with things, then I'm more than a little concerned because in one sense, to me, the effects are far graver than I'm aware of in any culture that I've ever known in the existence on our earth. We've become a post-Christian age. That in itself is alarming. The scientific worldview has contributed to that. My greatest concern for the way in which science shapes us is most evident in my mind in abortion. And um, people are not making those connections. If you look at our world in cultural terms, just in terms of our culture and compare it to cultures, we're closer to regimes that nobody wants to make comparisons with for us. I'm not even going to name them. Um, because we think we're educated, we're, we're, we're educated, we're urbane, we're sophisticated, we're articulate. You know, we've got all these qualities that are products of education. But So if you look at the material comfort of our culture, you'd say, we are far better off materially than interculture that's ever existed, except maybe in the middle of Egypt, you know, 2,000 years ago, or Babylon. or. But in terms of our popular culture at a mass level, if you look at abortion and the crimes rates in the West in America, they're horrific. I mean, we are a very, very violent people, and we pretend that we're not. And I, I myself cannot abstract science out of that. We're only in a position to, to do the number of abortions we're doing daily because of scientific procedures and scientific institutions who make it possible. So yes, science has done a lot, but the negative cost broadly in our culture, to me, puts me on guard. It, it, it is an alarming thing for me. I'm not against science, and if I've given that impression, I'm sorry, but because um, it's not my intention. But on the other side, I'm far more skeptical of it because when I look at the effects of the world we've created for ourselves, it horrifies me. It, abortion itself is enough to make me scared of our world. It's um, that, that, that we are neighbors next to each other and we are killing infants at the rate at which we do. That's, that's a terrifying situation. And we become resigned and some we don't think about it on, on the scale at which we do that's my my personal I, it's my personal feeling but I, I don't want I do not want to subtract from that and make it personal because in my mind it's in response to an objective reality outside of me that is alarming any last words we we've got we are more past time than any Final words, you guys. The hey, Bob. Um, it's Jolie. Hi, Jolie. I am just wanting to have y'all ask me next time. Um, I 
I hope that I can be there for the whole time. Can you um, can you turn your volume up a little bit? I'm not sure if it's just me or. I'll try. There um, you are. There you are. Okay. But, um, you know, as a person who's been an educator my entire professional life, I know that um, there have been, you know, just character qualities and certain virtues that have not been continued in, in um, school curriculum. And so if you all ever want to ask me about it, I can tell you, you know, as a person who's been teaching since the early 90s up to now, um, just you know, some things I've seen that have changed. And, um, th and yeah, I, I do believe that, you know, when you don't value human life, uh, including your own, but uh, when you think someone's value is less than your own or that your own comfort is more important than their right to life, then, um, you know, that then it doesn't matter if you are, do it low tech, like throw yourself down the stairs or if you use the latest, greatest, you know, curatage that they have available. Um, it is a character issue, and um, I'll be happy to discuss it more um, when we are within our time boundaries and not outside of them. Thank you, Jolie. Yes, um, uh, listen, we start the Agamemnon. Um, so if this was dark... Just know that we're going to be facing something darker because it's it's I, I don't I, it's just we're dealing with a very dark thing today. Um, the Oresti is about the founding of Athens. It's going to be about the coming into existence, a kind of city that will separate itself out and make it possible for humans to become more human by what it's doing. It's an extraordinary story, but the myth behind it, the legend behind it, has to do with um, the dismembering and eating of children. So one of the questions that I want to deal with next week is if you if you I, I will do what I can to get those notes into the box tomorrow. Mike said I because I had to change my password a few days ago that's probably why and I'll get those things to you but check the folder the next few days. I didn't know it didn't get in. I'm sorry you guys but I, I put in a a text on the myth of Tantalus, his chopping up his son and feeding it to the gods, and the curse that falls on the house of Atreus. Now remember, the house, the house of Atreus produces Agamemnon and Menelaus. They're the two who lead the expedition to Troy. So you guys have already experienced that. But we're going to get it from a different perspective now. Aeschylus comes several hundred years after Homer, so he's going to be drawing on Homer and a larger tradition than gets encompassed in the Iliad and the Odyssey. But it's dark. Um, Agamemnon's going to return. He's going to be killed by his wife. And Cassandra, who's a mistress he will have captured in Troy, um, will stand outside the house seeing, prophetically seeing, that original act reenacted. The dismembering of the kids, the feeding of the kids, and Agamemnon's murder. So the question that we're dealing with in the Agamemnon is, what goes on in families? Um, I won't be surprised if the number of participants shrinks next week. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to be looking at family problems um, and the, the, why, what's going on.
So it's a dark, dark story. Um, um, the Agamemnon deals with Agamemnon's return. The Libation Bears deals with um, Orestes, his son, killing his mother. So um, a, um, a wife treacherously killing her husband, a son killing his mother. <laughs> We're not looking at nice, kind American. Oh, God, this American, nice, kind American ideal. I just, this stuff drives me nuts. Um, this surface that we carry that we're also educated in. Anyway, in the humanities, the last play is going to resolve two forces that are coming together, these dark forces with these light forces, um, the Furies and Apollo, dark and light, are going to come together to produce an amazing thing. It, it will lead to the founding of Athens and what will distinguish Athens as a city because of the way it looks at the, at the dignity of the human person. So it's a very important work about our family. Okay, so all three plays are short. They're easy to read. Um, they're very short. What I'd like to do is, is take one class per play so that we don't dwell on them. I, um, I'll just go over the summary of the play and then I'm going to ask some questions about, you know, what, what I've just mentioned. So we should be able to get through them in, a, in the evening. So if you think we were talking about dark things tonight at the end, <laughs> get ready. Okay, you guys, um, thank you for being as good as you are, as good as you are um, dealing with. Thank you for your kindness, too, and the way you're dealing with hard things. So you guys have a good week. Um, see you next week. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Thank you, thank everybody. You thank you.